We look around, but we do not see. We hear all these sounds, but fail to listen. We talk the talk so eloquently, but when the time comes to walk the walk, we just turn a blind eye. We have become an audience like those who sit around soccer fields with nice comfy seats and plenty of food and drinks to last for the game. We have become an audience who just sits on the sidelines. We're the audience to the cries of those who cry for justice, wondering if justice was ever just because now, now it's just them and their Lord. Salam alaikum, everyone, or peace be on you. Or does anyone remember when assalami bacon was a thing? But I guess that's blasphemous, though. So, haram police, I surrender? Anyways, um, okay, this is actually kind of awkward, but please bear with me for the first one. Uh, welcome to this podcast. It is the Rogue Muslim, um, and I'm really happy to have you t- here today. I'm Samia, and I am your host today, and until death do us part? Damn. That, that escalated quickly. Well, uh, swiftly moving forward, I'm happy to have you here, as I mentioned. And why don't I tell you a little bit about this podcast and why I've decided to start it? So I was at a camp a couple months ago, and through conversation, I was led to understand that with every act we take, the intention should be to become closer to Allah, or at least with the desire for that act to make us closer to Him. So... That's my first aim. Uh, God, I'm coming at you. Side note about coming to God and like, (laughs) this is actually a really random side note. But when we were kids, we were taught to remember how many rakats or units of prayer we had to do each day through a metaphor of a phone number. So 24434 was the number. Kid Samia decided to bypass the whole ask for your wishes through prayer route and decided to call this alleged number. But alas, he nor his angels picked up and I went back to my prayer mat. I mean, it's worked out so far, but man, like I'm still waiting for that callback, mate. Anyways, I digress. Uh, I've also started this podcast with the aim for it to be a podcast by a Muslim for Muslims and non-Muslims, and also about Muslims. Also, another aside, but I think relevant to want to mention is the pronunciation of Muslim. It's Muslim with an S, not Muslim, Muslamic, which makes it sound like, I don't know, to me, like you want to say a Muslim cloth, and mate, none of us are trying to be that way. Um... And even in Arabic, it's spelt with a scene, not a Z, so it's Muslim. Um, and, I mean, in the English language, it's not like you don't have um, different examples, right? I mean, we have muscles, we don't say muscles, and we have pasta, we don't say pasta. So I think we can all say Muslim, right? Kapish? I mean... And I think it's important to pronounce identities and things correctly. First, because it's just like basic common decency. And then there's, and there's no harm in asking for the correct pronunciation, right? Like I remember in high school and I'm sure many 
people with quote-unquote unique names um, have had this experience, but when the teacher would get to my name, there would always be a pause. And I knew they were on my name, right? Like there would always be a pause and then a giggle and they'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm just so horrible with names. Is it Samina? Like, dude, where do you get Samina from Samia? And if I correct them, then sometimes they'll be like, oh, I'll make sure to remember that or just smile and move on. And then that was it. Like my identity was completely erased from their minds. Do you know what I mean? So... I do think it's important that we do attempt to pronounce things correctly. And when you pronounce names um, that are, you know, what white people call cultural names in a way that they aren't meant to be pronounced and like consistently do it, you seek consciously or unconsciously to delegitimize identities and take away agency from people or cultures. And I'm not the first one to correct the pronunciation of Muslim and the sad truth is that I won't be the last. But please make a concerted effort to pronounce it correctly and respect those of other faith and cultural backgrounds. And to Muslims, please, can we stop accommodating this pronunciation by starting to introduce ourselves as Muslims or whiten my names? And I went through this phase. I was like, honestly, you can just call me Sam. Like, I can't be asked with it. But I think in order to maintain the dignity of our faith and identities, we do need to continually correct um, people and inform them of the correct pronunciation. Okay, that was a long aside. Now let's get back to why I've started this podcast. Really what I wanted to do is highlight the plurality of thoughts and actions, initiatives, businesses, activism, and like general badassery being done by the Muslim community. Because the Muslim community has long been a convenient scapegoat for upholding the Manichaean dualism of good versus evil by the West. And I'd like to add my voice and hopefully curate a community of voices that have done and continue to break down the dualism and work towards dispelling the myths surrounding Muslims and Islamophobia. I want to show, quote unquote, the normalcy of Muslims living around the world. So, with your help, I would like to highlight a member of the Ummah or Muslim community each week and understand their perspectives, their actions, and how we as a community can help. The aim is to interview Muslims around the world and to actively attempt to bridge divides and schisms within our Ummah, with the hope that we can come together to support one another under the banner of Islam and belief in God. And that's what it also boils down to, hope. Something that I think is so often hard to grasp in this world. And so with the understanding that comes with knowledge and action, I hope to highlight the various avenues of hope that we have in this world. Now, I'm not sure where this journey is going to take me or us, in fact, but I really hope we can do it collectively and try to unlearn the harmful practices, systems, expectations, symbols, etc. with the hope to realize and actualize an ummah. This being said, I have decided to dedicate the first podcast to questioning what ummah? What is it? Where is it? And what does the future of the ummah look like? So, shall we jump right in? Whether we hear Osama bin Laden or Ayman al-Zawahiri urging the Ummah or Muslim nation to 
wage jihad against its enemies, to liberate its land, to restore its sovereignty and to revive its caliphate, or the Daesh, or um, the Islamic State. I just refuse to call it that because there is nothing Islamic about them. Coming out with the national anthem titled My Ummah, Dawn Has Appeared, and being played often in newscasts reporting on Daesh, I think it's conclusive to say that post 9-11, the word Ummah has been globally propagated by both those that subscribe to it, for better or for worse, and those that report on this idealized vision of an Ummah, or a co-opted vision of this Ummah. It then begs the question, what is the Ummah? And then once we answer this, a few more questions arise. What does it look like? Is it holistically individual or communal? Who is a part of it and who is not? Why is it important? And where is the ummah located? These questions all have relevance today in a world where the ummah is used to understand the complexities of it and those that adhere to the notion of an ummah. The propagation of it as one-dimensional can be dangerous to our understanding of communities and can further perpetuate the us versus them divide. And so this can be, you know, within the Muslim communities, between Muslims and non-Muslims, East versus West, etc. And so the term Ummah needs to be dissected, as does its relevance individually and communally for 1.6 billion Muslims around the reformed Islamic and external world. The Quran is the root source for the term Ummah, and I'm going to look to a great book called Islam, Faith and History by Mahmoud M. Ayyub to give us a perspective on the term Ummah and the plurality of its meanings. So basically, the term Ummah has a variety of social and temporal meanings. Abstractly, the word means a period of time, which is stated in chapter 12, verse 45, which goes, He one of the two prisoners with Joseph, who was spared when he remembered after a space of time, Ummah. And then it also means social custom or customary belief or practice, as when the Makkan opponents of the new faith, which was Islam, are said to have insisted, we have found our fair forefathers upon a practice or belief, Ummah, and we are following in their footsteps. And this can be found in chapter 43, verse 23. So here this refers to a way of life or conduct. But in its basic etymology, the word ummah is derived, interestingly and I think beautifully, from the same root word for mother, which is um. It indicates an assemblage of individuals, families, and tribes bound together by a common identity or a particular real or symbolic space of time. Prophet Ibrahim, or Abraham, as the prototypical man of faith and father of nations, is symbolically called in the Quran, Ummatan Qanitan, which is an Ummah, obedient to God and constant in prayer. And prayer is not just ritualistic, but it's also through our thoughts and our actions, right? So, in the widest sense, the Ummah refers to a nation or community. So the aim of the Muslim community is to be bound by faith, which is meant to supersede all other racial, cultural, geographic, or linguistic ties or relationships. I mean, ideally, the unity of the Ummah must reflect God's oneness, as the Quran states, This Ummah is one Ummah, and I am your Lord, therefore serve me. So it's to strive to be a community calling others to the good the best ummah brought forth from humankind in joining good and decent conduct and dissuading from evil and reprehensible conduct and having true faith in God. 
So we can say here that the diversity in usage and meanings reflects the diversity of the ummah and the moral obligations it follows in a pluralistic and multicultural world. So, for example, in chapter 21, verse 92 of the Quran, God says, Verily, this brotherhood of yours is a single brotherhood, and I am your Lord and cherisher. Therefore, serve me and no other. This verse shows that the Ummah is not united by kinship or culture. Rather, it is open to a diversity of such aspects of society. So long as each individual recognizes that the brotherhood or sisterhood they are a part of is united under one God. And this is reflected in the first practice of the Ummah, the Prophet's rule in Medina in 622 CE, when he redefined the ties between Muslims in the, what is called the Constitution of Medina. The constitution set faith relationships above blood ties and other social ties with an emphasis on individual responsibilities to the brotherhood and to God. Now, in reflection of the fact that the Ummah recognizes the unity of Muslims through a common belief in God, it also celebrates the diversity of peoples. Though everyone in the Ummah is united under one God, and this would extend to even other monotheistic religions, just their way of achieving proximity to him may either be the same or different. The Quran acknowledges and calls for the diversity of peoples and practices. It states, and this is a celebrity of Quranic quotes among Muslims, um, O ye people, verily we have created you male and female and have made you nations and tribes that ye may know one another. Lo, the noblest of you in the sight of Allah is the best in conduct. According to the commentary of this verse, the emphasis is on mankind or the human race as a whole, and not to the Muslims only. This verse deals with the natural brotherhood of man. It establishes the fact that men and women, be they of any tribe or clan or colors occupying any part of the earth, are all equal under God's love. And this also extends to non-monotheistic religions as well, as, every, um, as Muslims believe everyone is created by God and therefore worthy of his love. An important tradition to keep in mind, actually, is that of Ali ibn Abu Talib, who states, either a person is your brother in faith or your brother in humanity. The distribution, then, of men in nations and tribes and communities are only for the convenience of distinguishing themselves and recognizing each other with identification, and not for prideful purposes as we are all under the same God. To illustrate, Daesh are not, in fact, establishing an ummah, because they're excluding in their practice of others within the faith. So, for example, the Shia or other monotheistic faiths, for example, the Yazidis and just general humanity. Um, so the Quran itself and God doesn't allow for a one dimensional engagement with the Ummah. And it shows that God has created those within the Ummah to have their diverse social locations. So political, geographical, racial, ethnic, class gender etc and be individuals but still united under his worship now i've mentioned the islamic ummah is typically described in a one-dimensional realm that of a united islamic community in which all brothers and sisters in islam are one with each other religiously spiritually and community this is also expanded by the notion that the ummah refers solely to islam and muslims and therefore a perception is created to mean islam versus the result i mean versus the rest so then as a result uh, what is created is a dual of dualisms of sorts but the ummah i would argue has never fully been at one with those within it due to the geographical and socio-political 
cultural, racial, etc. differences that those within subscribe to. So yeah, again, things like ethnicity, sectarianism, cultural difference, etc. Personifying the Ummah makes it innately imperfect by de facto, since humans are imperfect themselves. More importantly, it limits and creates boundaries against the complexity and interconnectedness of the Ummah, which should then be understood as the pluralistic formation of Ummahs. If the ideology of the Ummah started with the, the message of Islam by the Prophet Muhammad and is still being utilized today, however fragmented, we can see that the Ummah has survived history through the golden age of Islam, the dark ages of Islam, colonization, imperialism, and modernity. What is especially important is that throughout these modernizing eras, the Ummah has had to, to reformulate and refashion itself to fit the needs of the people and society at the time, or to help the people and society through both good and bad times. Though it's characteristic of history, the problem with the one-dimensionality and romanticism of the Ummah lies within the Muslim tradition of rigidifying and freezing it in history. And that's typically the history of the Holy Prophet's time. There's, um, there's a Malaysian politician and scholar, Anwar Ibrahim, who in his article, The Ummah and Tomorrow's World, reserves this to be the reason in part for the contemporary problems of the Muslims and it must be resolved. So in his article, which is of vast importance, I think, in clarifying what the Ummah is meant to be in its entirety, he stipulates that the Ummah doesn't merely it doesn't imp imply merely the community of all those who profess to be Muslims. The single most important implication of Ummah is that it is a moral conception of how Muslims should be become a community in relation to each other, other communities, and the natural world order. This moral conception then must manifest itself in dynamic and pluralistic thoughts, actions, and an openness that has allowed the Ummah to survive historic influences. Ibrahim does not present the Ummah to us in the one-dimensional way that is inconclusive to its complexities. Rather, he emphasizes the Ummah is not and never has been culturally dominated by one dominant group, though Groups like Daesh certainly have tried to present themselves as the leaders of the Ummah and how it is perceived. And of course, often Islam is equated with Arab and that Middle Eastern cultures are the correct ways of practicing Islam. But then like this, of course, romanticizes Middle Eastern cultures and projects them to be unified and perfect also. I believe the rich diversity of expression has allowed for the Ummah to survive and provide rich interactions historically and currently with those that engage in cultural dialogue with the Ummah. The challenge with this, however, but perhaps also the beauty of it, is that the Ummah as a moral conception of Muslim thought and practice is that there is in actuality no defined or rigid code of conduct, even though we may assume there to be. Thus, it is culturally formed by the various nations and tribes, the various cultures and peoples of that culture, and of course the individuals themselves as they position themselves in the ummah as they deem best practice. So for example, individuals that are passionate about the environment and the environmentalist movement, as we all should be since climate change is a real thing. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, Donald Trump, who I am sure is vastly intrigued with what I have to say. So these individuals may choose to look to the Quran at the following verse. 
And when he turneth away from thee, his effort in the land is to make mischief therein and to destroy the crops and the cattle. And Allah loveth not mischief. So they would believe that their moral obligation within the ummah is to be environmentally friendly as the trustees of God's earth, since they will be answerable to him on the day of judgment. Now, though political groups, traditionalists and radical groups such as Saudi Arabia uh, or the Wahhabi uh, movement that has an ideology that has come out of there or Daesh have tried to make the ummah exclusive in their own vision of thought, practice and people, perhaps then the, the ummah should be redefined by its agents. The Muslims, as Ibrahim states, a universalist outlook that provides the means of existing within a genuinely pluralistic world. It regards intellectual pluralism as a consonant with the spirit of Islamic tradition. Now, we interrupt this podcast for a sponsorship break. The Rogue Muslim is sponsored by Blue Apron. Kidding. I'd have officially made it if it was. <laughs> this spon- uh, podcast is sponsored by me, myself, and I. That kind of reminds me of that uh, Mark Jacobs clothing image that went around. Do you guys remember it? It was like uh, Jacobs by Mark Jacobs for Mark by Mark Jacobs in collaboration with Mark Jacobs for Mark Jacobs, something like that. It was brilliant, (laughs) but uh, yeah, there is no sponsorship here. But if you would like to sponsor this podcast and be a part of the change you wish to see in this world, then hit me up. That would be fab. Anyways, we return to our regularly scheduled program. Also, don't know what that accent is or what the inspiration is, but let's just ignore it and continue with our conversation on the Ummah. And so why don't we look at the common misconceptions of the Ummah and how it is romanticized. So firstly, the Ummah is not fixed and coded in a particular era. It is not determinant. It's rather contingent on other factors, be they states, movements, economies, cultures, um, globalization, etc., Additionally, the Ummah is not totalist, that it makes a total claim on the individual and replaces the individual with only the Ummah. So it's not, and that is not necessarily seen as a negative by individuals. So we can look in reference to, for example, Malcolm X's famous speech upon return from Hajj, where he describes the awe of being a pilgrim in Mecca. And I know the Hajj season has just ended, so for those that were blessed to be able to go this year, I really wish that your du'as are accepted, inshallah, and may we all be blessed to be able to make the pilgrimage one day. So Malcolm X um, describes uh, the awe of being a pilgrim in Mecca, and actually tweet me if you also had these similar feelings. Um, He says, Never have I witnessed such sincere hospitality and overwhelming spirit of true brotherhood as it is practiced by people of all colors and races here in this ancient holy land, the home of Abraham, Muhammad, and all the other prophets of the holy scriptures. For the past week, I have been utterly speechless and spellbound by the graciousness I see displayed all around me by people of all colors." Even with this, it cannot be said that Islam is totalist, as interpretation itself, amongst other factors, divide the ummah and the individuals within it who too differ in their associations with orthodoxy and orthopraxy mean that it's not entirely totalist in practice. 
So the Ummah cannot wholly subscribe to the dichotomies of individualist and collectivist cultures. If it did, then how would then one interpret the conversion of non-Muslims living in individualistic societies, for example the United Kingdom, who convert to Islam, thereby entering the Muslim Ummah? And on that topic of conversation with the uh, perpetuation of the Ummah as one whole entity and community, many non-Muslims and sometimes even Muslims well, not sometimes, actually, I would say many of the times, Muslims can romanticize the communitarianism of the Ummah. Louise Sitar, in her article, British Female Converts in Islam, Choosing Islam as a Rejection of Individualism, relates the complexity of being a part of the Ummah for these converts. And so all three of her participants, who she's called uh, Aisha, Fatima and Khadija, all appreciated being a part of the Ummah. It's not the Ummah in its abstract form that attracted them to Islam, but rather it is the specific contacts they had with Muslims that gave way to their appreciation of being part of the Ummah. These contacts are what add to the complexities of the Ummah and leads me to conclude in believing in what I call micro-Ummahs. Aisha's conversion was motivated by her contact with the Muslim families around her and their friendliness. Fatima was motivated by her closeness with the Pakistani culture and community. And Khadija converted after marriage. All three had different journeys towards their micro-Ummahs, respectively if that's of certain communities through the Pakistani Ummah um, and or through family ties yet add to the collective identity of the macro-ummah under one God. And the interconnectedness of each Muslim within the ummah should not be romanticized, hence, again, my term micro-ummahs. The roughly 1.6 billion Muslims worldwide do not all live in one geographical location. Spreading of Muslims into na different nations and tribes means that they are affected by various influences and interpret the religion and the people of the religion differently. Since Muslims are not immune to societal effects like culture, tradition, social location, they too can be individualistic practice and thought. Or very collectivist in contrast, or even more, they float on the spectrum between the dichotomies of individualism and collectivism, taking from both to suit their lifestyles. A key component of Islam, as we know, is the concept of Tawheed, the oneness of God. In this belief, we can encompass that Muslims are only answerable to one God individually. On the Day of Judgment, we will be tried on our individual practices and responsibilities to the Ummah, and not just to the Muslims of the Ummah, to humanity in general. So it can't be said that the Ummah is totalist in theory or practice as the individual is at the end of their life responsible for their thoughts and actions or lack of actions. I mean, therefore, the Ummah cannot be romanticized to include one united Muslim community, but rather should be thought of as one Ummah united under the belief in God, but participants of macro, micro Ummahs. And what, that's whether we want this or not. These micro Ummahs are demarcated by cultures, races, ethnicities, language, geography, and even the digital communities. What we strive for, however, is to use the differences to work towards bringing us united under faith instead of letting them divide us. Now, as I had mentioned the jihadist groups of Al-Qaeda and the Daesh state in my introduction, I would like to make a point on their role in attempting to collectivize uh, and or curate an ummah and the responses to this. 
And for this, I looked at Talal Assad's insight on the intentions of the jihadists in their nation-building attempts in his book on suicide bombing, which, folks, if you haven't read, it is wajib to do so. It's an incredibly informative and accessible book. And in it, he questions the blanket association with jihadism and its connection with a monolithic ummah and problematizes the cookie-cutter approach, which generally needs like a ba'falisha said to it, to understanding and engaging with all jihadists as a collective, uh, as opposed to with individual or small community ideologies, goals and influences, and perhaps even defining, defending sorry, a particular time in a particular place. And so, though I agree with Assad, I will add that at this time and in this globalized world of fear or acceptance and questions of jihadists do not only divide the Muslim micro and macro ummas, but ummah, but also the extended ummah that embraces the pluralism of society. And both schisms intersect and affect one another. And so, it's the duty of both Muslims and non-Muslims to conduct a social, social autopsy of sorts as well as actively engage in um, jihad and nafs, you know, the greater jihad of the soul. But sorry, get to get back to that, it's our duty to conduct a social autopsy to understand their history and um, individual intentions and their impacts. And I'm talking about the jih- of jihadists here, um, or those that have co-opted the, the um, framework of jihad. And we also need to look at our responses to terror attacks and those that are increasingly isolated from society. In my opinion, we need to do away with this whole, his God is different to my God. And that's a mentality that's within the Ummah and external to the Ummah. So we need to strive to work towards being an inclusive and compassionate macro Ummah. Finally. And I'm going to stop here because I don't want to make this a Charles Dickens novel here. But finally, we need to talk about who and how we include groups and people into the macro ummah. We're all divided by our macro, micro, sorry, ummas, I believe. But it's our duty to work towards a macro ummah that is an inclusive one. So I got asked, who do we exclude in our general practices of who is Muslim enough or the good Muslim versus bad Muslim rhetoric that's taken precedence post 9-11 or like general discrimination by Muslim communities? For example, we often exclude the black community and the Black Lives Matter movement. We need to be there to support and give credence to our brothers and sisters in this fight. We need to do the same for those fighting against sexual and domestic violence, rape, abuse, etc. We need to do the same for converts or our indigenous Muslim brothers and sisters fighting for sovereignty and an end of their genocide. We need to do this for those that are seeking refuge, those that are fighting against systems of injustices, of sexism, racism, surveillance, xenophobia, etc. We need to stand against and take actions against states that are directly and indirectly fueling genocide. So, for example, that of the Rohingya Muslims or Palestinians or the genocides of the indigenous communities. We need to stand in solidarity and take actions against those facing famine and starvation. We need to stand with and for each other, to support each other, encourage each other and stand against and fight back against systems that intersectionally oppress one another. So let's not be Muslims that are all talk and no action. And remember, when I'm pointing a finger, I've got four, uh, well, technically three fingers pointing back at myself. So I'm talking about me here as well. Let's not be 
uh, I guess, WhatsApp Muslims, where we'll like forward messages of sympathy and have no empathy that is met with action. That even makes sense, that last part. It's a, kind of an analogy, I guess, that I thought up right now and so have not thought it through. Anywho, um, this podcast here is my attempt at standing with my Muslim brothers and sisters and the extended ummah, so humanity. And I'd love to know what you're doing or what you can do to do so. I mean, let's pool our resources to unite ourselves with each other and under God. So this is basically it for my first podcast. And I apologize for the verbal vomit, but I do hope to be back at it again. Well, unless we take Fox News seriously when they say the world is going to end on September 23rd. And I mean, Fox News is my Bible. Uh, so this podcast may not even be aired. Kidding. But I do actually hope to be back. And this time with interviews with Muslims who are doing cool things in this world. And I'm sorry if this has been an absolute cringe fest of a first podcast. I mean, I hope it was okay. But if not, I mean, I can only hope to improve. And if you have any suggestions on how I can do so or any one or any topic you'd like me to bring up in this podcast, um, please feel free to email me at theroguemuslim at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me via my Facebook page, which is The Rogue Muslim, my Instagram at The Rogue Muslim, or Twitter, which again, surprise, surprise, is at The Rogue Muslim. And please subscribe, leave a repute, leave a review, or a repute, whatever that is. Um, if you're reputing, repudiating, never mind. Um, so basically, leave a review and spread this podcast. Um, it all really helps me out and I would definitely appreciate it. Um, and you can find this podcast on iTunes podcast, uh, Stitcher and SoundCloud. And now a special shout out definitely goes to Nassim Askari, whose spoken word wake up is the introduction for this podcast. Nassim is a poet, an artist, a warrior and a general badass woman and one of my favorite artists who is using her voice to stand up against oppression. And you can follow her impressive work on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Nassim underscore Askari. So that's at N-A-S-I-M underscore A-S-G-A-R-I. And or you can follow her Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Asghari Nassim. And finally, at the end of each podcast, I would like to ask for your prayers. So I'll ask for different people, different issues and different needs at each. Um, each week and if you have anyone you would like uh, us to send a prayer out for please feel free to message me via any method you choose this week I ask that we all recite a Surafatiha or send your prayers and positive thoughts and actions for the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar the refugees who have fled and those who have been brutally murdered as a result of this ethnic cleansing as well as for uh, Aruba and Hala Barakat, Syrian activists and journalists who were murdered in their homes in Turkey for fighting for justice. So please, if you can keep them in your prayers, in your actions, that would be really great. And let's all work towards being accountable for one another. Okay, so like that's actually it from now. This is incredibly thirsty work. So I'm a peace. But till next time, keep... Uh, reading, educating, you know, like following the 
actions of the first verse revealed to the prophet, which was to read. So yeah, keep reading and educating. And until next time, salam alaikum.